Well, good morning. Whoa, what a treat this is. I have, uh, I've had the blessing at times of leading worship with my daughter, but I've never preached and had her lead worship. Thank you, Mark, for letting her lead this morning, and I, I really appreciate that. Well, if you're newer to Fourth Avenue, uh, I did come here in 2003 through th- 2011, and uh, I've had such a blessing uh, to be able to be associated with this church through that and now through uh, other ways. I currently lead worship at a really sweet church over in West Nashville, the Western Hills Church, and I really appreciate those guys letting me be away this, this Sunday to, to be here this morning. Thank you so much, Western Hills. And uh, for 30 years, uh, my wife, Marka, and my two children, uh, Cole and Kelsey, have enjoyed the ministry of Halal Worship. We've just thanked God for letting us be a part of that. And we want to always encourage others in music and in their spiritual renewal. This week, we started a new recording uh, that is about the old hymns. In fact, over the next year, if everything goes according to plan, we'll have done three projects with 24 songs each. That's 72 hymns that we've done this, this, over this next year, and we're, we got that, the wheels going this week. So we have spent quite a, a time in the studio this week. It's been pretty intense, um, and uh, Cole and Kelsey and I have spent quite a few hours together this week. It's been a more difficult project than I thought it was going to be because... Um, first of all, just selecting what hymns are we going to put on these projects, because there's so many great ones. Secondly, because we had to tweak them a little bit to kind of sing like we've learned to sing them over the years. And there, was a, there were a few debates about that along the way. Uh, in fact, Kelsey and Cole, now I've been leading these hymns for about half a century. Uh, and there were some debates about how we were going to do the hymns. Well, guess who won? Not me. But I got to tell you, my children come by it honestly, and they're stubborn as I am. And boy, we got some good, good decisions made this last week. So, so we're looking forward to that project, uh, and we are, it's a treasure to work with my family every moment I get to do that. Uh, there, before we go into our message this morning, if you wouldn't uh, mind allowing me just to take a few moments to, to talk about you, because there are some really special people in this church that mean a lot to my family. Before we moved here in 2003, Kelsey was attending ACU in Texas, and she threatened us when we thought about moving to Tennessee, and she said, if you move to Tennessee, you will never see your grandkids. (laughs) And Marco reminded her, she said, Kelsey, first of all, we have no grandkids. Number two, you're not even dating anybody, and so we're not so worried about that. So so we did, but, but, but God has a sense of humor. Um, and we moved here, she moved here, uh, Marka and Kyle Bills arranged for Anthony and Kelsey to meet up, and the rest is history. <laughs> so uh, the first, first and foremost, we love 4th Avenue because this is home for Kelsey and Anthony and those four incredible kids that were sitting down there while ago, one's gone, but the other three are here. And uh, thank you all for nurturing and caring and loving them. Love them. And by the way, Fourth Avenue was also the place where Chris Barnhill and I arranged for Cole to meet Allison Kimbrough. 
And that worked out, and now they live here, and he leads worship over at Otter Creek every Sunday morning. So I'm really proud of them. Before 2003, we were dyed-in-the-wool Texans. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but that's a lot, because Texans can really be snobs. (laughs) We were the kind of Texans that believed if a man's from Texas, he'll tell you. If he's not, why embarrass him by asking? (laughs) Well, we had declined earlier invitations to move to the Nashville area before the Fourth Avenue elders approached us in early 2003. We loved Texas, and we loved our church in Midland. And after several meetings with the elders, we just wrestled and wrestled with it and said, no, we really need to stay in Texas. And so we decided to stay. But then Kyle Bills gave us a call, had us come back up for another meeting, and he set us down in the office back here one evening, and he said, you guys are coming to Fourth Avenue. Now, if you knew Kyle, you understand that he is a force to be reckoned with. And so we said, yes, sir. (laughs) And, uh, And we ended up coming. But his vision for this church and the passion of the elders to make a difference in this community uh, won us over. You see, after much prayer and thought, they had asked this question. You see, Fourth Avenue is a wonderful church family, like many other great churches that are just great church families. But when they asked the question, if we went away tomorrow, would our community really miss us? And the sobering answer to them at that time was, no. I don't think they would miss us. And so they decided to do something about that, and we just wanted to come and be a part of that dream. You see, even before 2003, in 2002, God was already planning to bring hope and healing to inner-city youth here in Franklin through the dream of a redneck plumber named Wayne Howe. (laughs) You got to love Wayne. Wayne, are you here? All right, there you are up there. Good. What an incredible vision that's continued to change the lives of so many underserved kids. And Fourth Avenue has played an incredible role in its success. I miss getting to witness Wayne baptize those kids. I never understood the physics that you could actually displace the water in an entire baptistry if enough force is applied during the baptism. Wayne knew how to do that. And then there was a great decision the elders made before we even came here. And that was to do something that very few churches had done in our fellowship especially. And they decided that if the church was going to have the impact it needed to have in this city, that they needed to learn how to pray. And so they hired a guy by the name of Albert Lemons. Now, some say that Albert is the reincarnation of Moses. (laughs) I, I tend to agree with that. I'm telling you, Albert's passion is infectious. He's the most passionate guy about the Lord. And he can make going to McDonald's like, feel like an epic experience, you know, an adventure. And, and one, one day, we had, our staff had gone with Albert to Nashville to visit the hospital, someone who was sick from our church. And, and so made our visit, spent time together, had lunch. And then on the way back, we're, we're, we're coming back down 65, back down to Franklin. And, and we're in Albert's new car, which was a Chrysler 300 with a Hemi V8. 
And Albert was really proud of that car, and he would like to brag on how fast he could go from, from, from zero to 60 in that car. And then to our horror, he said, let me show you what this girl can do. And he hit the, the gas pedal with all he had, and we all got to experience for just a moment what astronauts must experience <laughs> at launch and, and, uh, and re-entry. Uh, boy, it was just amazing. It scared us to death. But Albert just... He, he's full of life like that. And there are so many other special people in our lives in this church. People like Jimmy Gentry. Jimmy Gentry is the best storyteller ever. Would you agree? Incredible. And we talked the, the, the Gentries uh, over the years into letting Jimmy go with us with Halal to several great adventures, from the Pepperdine Lectures to West Texas. And with, without fail, every time Jimmy spoke, the hearts of the people were so deeply moved by his stories of life and value and faith. And let me go through some others. I'm, I'll miss a lot of them, but please don't, just forgive me for that. But Mrs. Pig. Mrs. Pig is the most graceful Southern lady I've ever met, and you have met as well. And are you here this morning, Miss Pig? No, but welcome. Uh, happy 99th birthday. I understand that was recently uh, a great milestone. Miss Novella, great cook, incredible woman, great smile, always such an great encourager. Nancy Boffman, you are the, I'd have never known anybody that loved people and the Lord like you love, love people and the Lord. In fact, you may have, have, you're up there really high as far as one of the favorite people I've ever worked with. And so, love you. We got to have lunch recently, it was awesome. Brad Schrader, where are you Brad? All right Brad, there, when Brad Schrader is in the assembly, it is never dull. And there's always a special life and a special spark. And I'm gonna mention one other name just because I have to. Ron and Sue Brinker, because they taught us how to clog, and uh, I really appreciate that, your spirits. I love each of you dearly, and, and uh, thank you for letting me be here today. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you for this church, the special people here, and the incredible history it's enjoyed. I pray the best is yet to come. I believe that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that you will continue to make this church into a force for your glory. Give the leaders here at Fourth Avenue wisdom and favor as they lead and as they search for a godly leader to teach and love this family. I know that you're with us and you fight for your people. And I know you're fighting right now for the people in Ukraine. Please bring healing and peace to that country. And now, bring us life through your word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, turning your Bibles with me to Numbers 13, that's where we're going to start today. Let's just read. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Now, these were the names that follow of the 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes who were sent. Now, keep in mind, these are just not ordinary men. They're chieftains. They are the best offering from each tribe. 
Now, when Moses sent them in verse 17 to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kinds of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land? Because it was a season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they explored the land, picking it up in verse 25. And at the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them, and the whole assembly, and they, they showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here are its fruits, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The, the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and they're giants. And, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Well, then Caleb, who was at the time 40 years old, silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, and we should do it now, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak from, who comes from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. What a story. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, what a pathetic group of men to be calling your leaders. It reminds me of the weak leaders sometimes we see in our country and our world today that we're just so hungry. Where are the good leaders that can step up and really lead people? You see, just several months earlier, these men had seen the Israelites liberated from 400 years of slavery by the greatest empire in the world at that time. Well, they had been personal witnesses to the plagues that afflicted the Egyptians but left Israel untouched. They had had their own hands smear blood on the doorways of their homes and then heard the, one, the cries of Egypt as their firstborn fell. They had walked between the towering walls of water that divided at the command of Moses, and then they watched those walls collapse over the army of Pharaoh. They ate bread that had miraculously appeared um, in the morning, and they drank water gushing from a rock. They felt Sinai quake and saw it glow with fire. Now you tell me what people in all history had greater witness that God was with them and would use his unsurpassable power for their behalf. Well, maybe this is the kind of men you end up with after 400 years of slavery, having your pride and dignity stripped away, leaders who lack character, faith, strength, and courage. So the people buy in to the fear and they rebel. 
They're spineless, gutless, weak-kneed grumblers and complainers. In chapter 14, you continue to read about their whining and the great cost of their faithlessness. They could have taken the promised land right then and there, but instead they would wander in the desert for 40 years until every person 20 years and older on that day was dead, with the exception of two men, Joshua and Caleb, who chose to trust God even though they also had suffered through those years of slavery and, 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 uh, and destruction. Now, this is what God says about Caleb in Numbers 14, 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit. I love that word, wholehearted. It's going to be an important word before we're through today. It comes from the, Lori looked at my slides this morning, she goes, What's that word? Uh, and I said, it's maleti. I've come to love that word. It's Hebrew for wholehearted. In fact, it inspired me last spring to start a Zoom study group with 12 men from across the country, all grandfathers, all desiring to have the spirit of Caleb. And it was an incredible experience together. We're called the maleti group, and we're doing it again this spring. I'm going to hold on to that word for a few minutes. And we're going we're gonna to now go ahead in history to a time when Caleb is 85 and Joshua is handing out the inheritance of the promised land. Now the people of Judah, in Joshua 14, 6, now the people of Judah approached Joshua of Gilgal and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly, Maledi. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, as he kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness, so here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go into battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself then that you yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Well, then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron, as his inheritance. So Hebron is, has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Say it with me, wholeheartedly. I recently was very, became very impressed with a guy uh, in, in his wholehearted spirit. His name is Bob Unanu, and he's 
um, who's had the courage to speak out about his faith in a cancel culture world. He's the Hispanic CEO of Goya Foods. In a recent interview, he was being asked about the incredible effort his company is making to send food to Ukrainian refugees. And in that interview, he made this statement. The destruction and evil we are seeing throughout the world is the result of us turning away from God. As you would guess, the media took offense, and they're doing everything they can to cancel him. The media has also, many times, and, and, and people in our culture, in our world, they've tried to cancel the church and the family. You see, the church and the family are the fundamental building blocks of strong societies. God designed them to nurture wholehearted and uncompromising faith. Both have been, have, have been under a well-planned and orchestrated attack for many years by godless people. An attack too often finding its grip in our schools. An attack that's resulted in the serious erosion of character and courage. And, and when character and courage erodes in the people, the whole world is not the same. And the whole world turns from God and it gets ugly. Paul reminds us in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, don't miss that. When the truth is suppressed, darkness results. Verse 21 says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Caleb had a clarity about who God was and what he was capable of doing. He stood by his, this, this truth, even when the community wanted to kill him for it. I believe we start losing Caleb's when we lose sight of what truth really means. We sometimes have so watered down our faith in fear of offending someone We've blurred the lines between truth and opinion. You see, the churches of Christ that I grew up in came from a restoration heritage that held to this belief. And if you grew up in the churches of Christ, you can say this with me. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. We grew grew up knowing that phrase. Well, what are matters of faith or You might say matters of absolutes. Let's call it that this morning. And what are matters of opinion? I want to recommend that you read a book by the name of Winsome Convictions by Tim Muehlhoff and Richard Langer, who go into much further detail about some of the things we're going to talk about. Matters of opinion. Paul talks about matters of opinion in Romans 14.1. He says, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. In other words, in a lot of situations, work it out. Live and let live. But don't let it cause divisions. Now, you need to understand the the disputable matters he's talking about and he's about to address are not trivial matters. They are about diets and days that Jews and Gentiles held very different views on and strong views. But 
They were matters of opinion, Paul says, not matters of absolutes. One of the many failings of of my, my life is that in my childhood and early adulthood, I too many times placed certain matters of opinion or taste or preference over into the matters of absolutes. Matters of opinion, the church. You see, from childhood, I was taught that the only right church in town was my church. Can anybody else relate with that? It was not the church. It was the church, a church of Christ. We had the corner on truth and heaven. In fact, I remember being told as a child that I couldn't play with the children out in the playground area of our church after church from the churches that were adjacent to us because they didn't go to the right church. Attending the right church was a matter of absolutes, not opinion. Because everything was made to be an absolute, allowing for very little room for disputable matters. Now, you see, that posed a little problem in my family. I lived in Divine, Texas. Isn't that a great place to live? Divine, Texas. And my grandparents all lived there too. Nanny and Papa lived there, and that was my mom's parents. They were devout Baptists. I never, ever got to go to church with them. VBS, it didn't matter. I never went. But we prayed for them often. (laughs) Matters of opinion. Christmas. We always had a great tradition of family and gifts and food at Christmas. It was really great. But we must have never read Romans 14. Because we didn't think it was right for people to celebrate special religious days. We celebrated the birth and resurrection of Jesus every Sunday, and that was enough. You see, our Christmas caroling consisted of jingle bells, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Never Silent Night, Joy to the World, or Away in the Manger. That would have made it a religious occasion And we only did religious on Sundays and Wednesdays, every Sunday, every Wednesday. I never saw The Wizard of Oz. It was on Sunday evenings. Again, we put matters of opinion into that absolutes column. Dangerous thing. Matters of opinion, acapella music. Now, if anyone knows me, you know I can talk about this because I love acapella music. My life is all about acapella music. Every Sunday, like you do here at 4th Avenue, we at Western Hills sing a blend of contemporary songs and hymns. Uh, we sing uh, just a little bit of a cappella uh, and some instrumental as well. So it's kind of a blend. I grew up in South Texas where we had monthly church singings, a cappella, and frequent youth singings. They were all vocally driven with four-part harmony, and everyone learned the right harmony and learned your part. And by the time you were a teenager, if you hadn't selected a part, it was selected for you, and you learned that part. I went to the Joe Edgar Fur Texas Normal Singing School in Sabinal, Texas, as opposed, I guess, to the abnormal singing school, which I should have been at. 
We learned harmony and music theory and shake notes and how to lead like, you know, just do it all right. And for some reason, we totally ignored the book of Revelation. And we put a cappella singing in the matters of absolutes in our faith. Now, it took some effort, but we could even try to take and twist Scripture around to prove we were right. It was a matter of right and wrong and heaven and hell. Back to Nanny and Papa. We were over at their house eating dinner one evening. And they, uh, after dinner, we retired to the living room. Well, there it was, sitting over against the wall. Nanny's prize, she loved the organ she had in there. And she liked to play. She wasn't great, but she liked to play. She sat down at the organ, and she began to play Amazing Grace. One of my sisters and I sang along with her. One of my sisters did not. She kept her mouth shut. On the way home that night, that sister that kept her mouth shut was praised and glorified. And the other children were said, don't ever let that happen again. That's how bad it was. Even in college, as a young adult, I told Marka that her old youth minister, Tim Lewis from Plainview, Texas, was in jeopardy of losing his soul because he was listening to contemporary music. <laughs> Does God have a sense of humor or what? <laughs> but there are matters of absolutes. I think what's happened in the last 20 to 30 years in my life, in the churches of Christ, and in other tribes as well, because we're not the only ones, the only fellowship with this kind of problem, believe it or not, is we've been liberated from the bondage of so many things that, that were misled beliefs. And now we are, we've enjoyed and rejoiced in the freedoms God has allowed us as we worship and glorify Him. And that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes, this is what happens in a, in a family, in a culture, in a church. When the pendulum swings from one extreme like legalism, it has a tendency to swing too far the other direction. And so, maybe because of our shame and embarrassment of our views we once held, we've just about thrown everything into the matters of opinion column. And, and this is maybe even more devastating and dangerous because when everything is in the gray area, there is no absolute truth. So our thinking does what? It becomes futile and our hearts become dark. Well, here are some absolutes where I, I believe, and I think you would agree, there should be no disagreement. This is about truth. Absolute. The Word of God is our authority inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebu rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, I think it's, it's wise to look at Scripture with cultural context in mind as when it was written. In doing so, we, we reach a better understanding of issues like women's roles and worship and communion and head coverings and spiritual gifts and holy kisses. But when the Bible is reduced to a narrative that is more allegory than truth, we violated its power to inform us about what a holy life really looks like.
absolute. Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross and was buried and then resurrected. Now, Paul tells us a lot about this. In fact, the the apostles do. If you read through the book of Acts, every time they open their mouths, they talk about the resurrection. And 11 times they do that in the book of Acts. But, But Paul says this to Timothy. All Scripture is useful, but he, he had said all Scripture is useful. But now in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, but you better correctly handle the word of truth. And to clarify, he told the Ephesians that they were included in Christ when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, he defines it. And then he reminds the Corinthians in that great chapter about the resurrection that the gospel of salvation or the word of truth that he had preached to them was about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to inform them them that if Jesus was not resurrected, it's a sad day because your faith is futile. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hang our hats on that one. Absolute, the Trinity. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There are many other scriptures other than Matthew that speak of one God who eternally exists in three persons. A great book that describes the Trinity, helps us understand it, is The Shack by William P. Young, also made into a movie. Now, some of the churches of Christ in our past have struggled with the doctrine of the Trinity, especially believing the Holy, that the Holy Spirit really has power in our lives today. And at one point, our hymnal editors changed the words to a great hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. I grew up singing it as God over all and blessed eternally. How many sing it that way? Okay. But the original lyrics were God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That change came from some person or group having a hard time acknowledging the existence of the Holy Spirit as one of the Trinity. Well, I'm happy to tell you today, we just started recording Holy, 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 and the Trinity's back. (laughs) Moral absolute. Because not only do we have the, uh, the, the, the importance of, of those absolutes that there could be no question about, that are beliefs, but we have these moral absolutes that are just as important to God. We are to honor God with our bodies and sexual lives. God designed marriage to be the only union where a man and woman can share complete intimacy. And it's about time we started teaching that again. So many young people today that I work with and around, when it comes to sexual intimacy, equate dating and engagement with marriage. The right thing to do is for us to teach them about godly sexual purity and encourage those in sinful relationships to return to a season of celibacy before they're married. 
I've had to do that as a premarital counselor, and it's really hard. But it's the right thing to do. Moral absolute, sanctity of life. We should always honor the sanctity of life and love those who have suffered from abortion for any reason. I mentioned the interview with Bob Ananu of Goya Foods. Well, in that same interview, he made this statement. Why would we be shocked when Russian soldiers justify killing children in Ukraine when we justify killing children in the womb every day in this country? Now, as you can imagine, he got slammed for that as making a very offensive statement. Moral absolute, marriage. God's design for marriage is for one man and one woman. Divorce should only be an option if there is unfaithfulness or abuse. I love what Matt Chandler, the pastor of the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas, which is near Dallas, what he said on his Sunday message right after the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court rule in favor of same-sex marriage. He said, we want you to know that everyone is welcome to this family. We welcome same-sex marriages, but we want you to know that we reserve the right to teach you what God says about his plan for marriage. Well, the Apostle Paul chose celibacy instead of marriage. It was how he best thought he could honor God. I have friends like Paul who have lived very meaningful lives as singles. And I have dear friends who are gay, who have lived their lives as singles. And some of those have played a vital role in Halal's ministry over the years, and we love them dearly. The word holy means to be dedicated and consecrated to God, to be morally and spiritually excellent. We should have no hesitation and with mercy and grace help others understand that our moral conduct is important to our Father. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Well, in matters of absolute beliefs and morality, may we learn to be wholehearted like Caleb. And in matters of opinion, may we learn that being wholehearted is also being filled with grace and love and patience. I want to close this morning with a story, kind of bring you an update about it, one of my favorite people. I'd like to close by telling you uh, about Willie Godot, bringing you up to speed if you know Willie already. If you were here in 2003, you remember who Willie Godot was? What, what do we call him? The Lawnmower Man. Uh, we even played a video at Fourth Avenue early on while Tom was here, I think, that, uh, that had such an impact that someone started making all these metal badges with I'm the Lawnmower Man, and, and it was representing their desire to serve. Now, here's his short, the short part of his story. As an older man in his 70s, he would mow his neighbor's yard after the man had broken his arm. The man would sit on his porch drinking a beer and curse at Willie to get out of his yard every time. Willie would just keep mowing. And the man would say, get out of my yard. And Willie would look at him in that kind voice and say, brother, I'm going to mow your yard. 
And finally, after weeks of this, Willie was able to teach the man about Jesus, and he became a faithful Christian. It's a great story. Well, guess what? Willie just turned 100 years old in January, and that's what he looked like at 100. Last year, I had the honor of producing a one-hour video on Willie's life. Got to spend hours in interview with him, and you can find it on YouTube if you want to go, go see it. It's just type in Willie Godot, and there's the spelling, and uh, it's called Richly Blessed. It's a one-hour, it's a history lesson, but it's also a lesson about wholeheartedness. Uh, Willie reminds me, uh, uh, well, Willie, let me tell you one more thing about Willie. Willie's the guy that also, every time you go up to him and say, how are you doing today, Willie? He'll say, I'm richly blessed. And that's where the song came from, richly blessed. Willie reminds me in so many ways of Caleb. He still has that spark in his eyes when you sit and visit with him, and he's taught me so much about what it means to be wholehearted, to be maledi, and to live that way for God. I I learned even more through the interview, and I learned this even more about Willie. He's always been a strong but humble man. He's had an unswerving faith in God his whole life. He never avoided confrontation when it was needed, but did so in love. He's always been a formidable defender of absolute belief and moral conduct. He's loved sinners and always understood what mercy and grace are really about. And he's the guy that always says, I'm richly blessed. Well, Eugene, Willie's son, was a missionary in Brazil. He was home on vacation along with his wife and children. And he was riding his bike one morning outside of Midland. And a drunk driver came over the little hill and uh, was going too fast and didn't see him. And he killed Eugene on the spot. Willie forgave that man, and he went to jail to teach him about Jesus, and he pleaded for mercy before the judge when the trial came up. At Eugene's funeral, I ran into Willie coming out in the hallway after the family meal. He had tears running down his face, and I hugged him, and I said, how are you doing? I didn't expect this in that moment, and with tears running down his face, he said, I'm richly blessed. I'm telling you, that's wholehearted. May each of us strive to be wholehearted. And I want to end by paraphrasing a great musical. May each of us, and let's stand together. May each of us be men and women like Caleb, who covered with scars, will strive with our last ounce of courage to reach the reachable God, and the world will be better for this.